We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Next, Veronica Koptis is the executive director of the Center for Coalfield Justice. She's a native of coal country, has been organizing for, the environment, for environmental and climate justice for over 10 years, and is the Pennsylvania Sierra Club chapter chair. The climate movement and environmental movement at large is extremely privileged. Most of the people engaged and involved in it and leading it come from backgrounds with more privilege than communities that don't have it. We need to make the movement inclusive, but we need to do it authentically and by making those that are most marginalized at the forefront and leading. Sometimes it means we're going to have to cross the bridge first as the climate movement to help somebody else's community on an issue that they need resolved before they can even try to consider thinking about what's going on with the climate because communities are going to listen to people they trust, people that have been in their communities for generations, and it's going to take time, but it's the only way we're going to win and we're not just going to shift to a system that still creates sacrifice zones across our country. Our guest today is Veronica Koptis. As you'll learn, she is a dedicated environmentalist deeply rooted in her beloved coal mining country. She has a well-earned understanding of what coal means to many in rural communities. And despite sometimes challenging circumstances, she stays focused on the sustained fight for environmental justice. I actually, Veronica, came to be your fan when you spoke on a panel at the Climate Reality Conference that happened here with Al Gore. And the clarity with which you spoke about your experience and the perspective of people whose voice often isn't heard was just incredible for me. And I really thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be here today and talk about my experience living in a rural community, but also like what rural communities can be moving forward in the future. When I was a senior in high school, the Ryerson Station State Park is a gorgeous state park in Greene County. And because of their impacts from longwall coal mining that caused structural damage to the dam, the lake had to be drawn down. And that was actually like the first real impact to me that the coal company clearly did something. Everybody in the community knew, like it was just common knowledge what mining damage looks like out there. And yet, it was like a four-year battle with the state and the coal company to confirm that they did it and get them to pay for it. You do live in a rural community, mm-hmm. and in the national media and in the national conversation that's been dictated by the president, rural Pennsylvania around Pittsburgh is characterized as having one point of view on fossil fuel extraction and the nature of its economy and the beliefs of its people. and. I think you've experienced a different rural America, but you're also sensitive to all of that. You live in a county called Greene County. Can you tell folks about Greene County and how you ended up there? Yeah, Greene County is the southwesternmost county in Pennsylvania, bordered by West Virginia on each side. And it's very remote in certain parts of it. It's rolling hills, forest, but then it's also dotted with fossil fuel extraction across the terrain, too. And it has a rich history of extraction, but it also has a rich history of resistance that we don't talk about. A lot of the major union battles started in the coal patch towns that popped up all along the Monongahela River in the late 
late 1800s, early 1900s. The narrative is that we're people that need and love coal. But if you look back at our history, we may have needed it at a point in time, but we didn't love it. And we fought the coal companies every step of the way. What was it like to grow up there? It was really serene, and I just remember a lot of freedom, actually. My parents didn't have to wonder or worry about our safety. We have about 25 acres around us that my parents and my grandfather own jointly. You know, neighbors are sure, hike on my property, it's fine. And so my brother and I had probably about 300 or 400 acres of land that we would just run around on. And then with my grandfather, we learned a lot about gardening and self-sustaining. And so I remember picking potatoes in the garden. So for me, growing up in the outdoors just gave me an entire appreciation for what the environment and what a healthy environment can provide you. But also there's just a mental cleansing that I feel like you get when you're among nothing but trees and you're listening to all the sounds of nature. Nature is one of the most powerful forces that's out there. And you know we all know as humans, we're having an impact on different things. But in my opinion, nature is powerful powerful and she's mighty and she'll bat last and in the end <laughs> we'll have the say. Well and it's interesting because there's so much research emerging now about how important it is to have access to nature to be a, a full and stable human being. You went away for college to West Virginia University, one of the largest universities in this part of the country and what a lot of rural communities experience and worry about is that their young people go away to school and don't come back. So what pulled you back? When I graduated, the economy wasn't in a great place. So it was a combination of, I got this degree, I'm living at home, and trying to find a job, and there weren't any jobs to really pull me out of the area. I was just waiting tables at a local diner looking for work. What was your experience like? waiting tables. It was really enlightening. The connection I got with folks in my community brought me back to what I enjoyed when I was growing up. I was very outspoken against the coal industry even as a teenager, so other people knew that. The biggest insight when I started waiting tables was other people confiding in me that they also weren't happy with how they were being treated by the coal industry, hmm. talking about not being treated fairly after their home was undermined and destroyed, or talking about being afraid to say anything because their uncle works for the coal mine and they don't want the mine to fire him for their belief. And is that a real thing for them, that fear of reprisal? It's a very real thing in these communities next to the coal mines in in coalfield areas and what they've done in the past of intimidating communities from challenging them is still remembered from a generational standpoint. It was at that point that I was really starting to question what I should do as I'm looking for additional jobs or trying to find a better paying situation so I don't have to continue living with my parents. We also, during that time, had a massive fish kill, the Dunkard Creek fish kill that happened in September of 2009, I believe it was. And it was a 43-mile fish kill that was really mysterious. And there were also like muskies that were the length of a shovel were dying, which is not common in a fish kill and one of our regulars at the restaurant doesn't use computers or have access to Wi-Fi and so I brought my laptop into the restaurant we did some Google searches and that was when I found the Center for Coalfield Justice we got some help on the fish kill and the Center for Coalfield Justice happened to have a jobs tab and they had an AmeriCorps position and I applied for it and I got it and it was 
entering a world that I didn't know. And I had no clue that there was this entire community right like at my fingertips that also wanted to see the coal industry operating better in our community and wanted to see plans for an economic transition. There's a way of talking about rural America and in the country today that depicts it as having one political perspective, one point of view around an issue like coal, a notion that it's the hotbed of poverty and lack of opportunity. What's wrong with how we're talking about rural America? Well, I think the same way you wouldn't say the city of Pittsburgh as this monolithic community Mm -hmm. that's all the same and thinks the same, neither is rural America. I also think the misnotion that we're uneducated and unable or don't have the ability to help ourselves is totally untrue too. The education and the skills that come from rural America are really unique, practically based Mm -hmm. and survival based. The conversations I have with people about politics today, they're really thinking on all ends of it. What does this mean? I think media has played a huge role in this polarization of just pitting like a rural community is definitely a red part of a state when you still have a mix of political ideologies. And I think if you go and talk to anybody, you'll understand that it is complex. And a lot of what the issues at the forefront of rural America are boiling down to is can they support their families and are their families sustaining jobs? And that's where coal comes into play. I mean, the reality is until we raise the minimum wage or we attract a diverse economy to Greene County, coal is one of the few jobs that is left that you can comfortably support your family by putting a roof over your head, food on the table, and your kids to college. You touched earlier on the history of activism around the coal industry in Greene County. Tell us a little bit more about that history of activism. So this is a history I've recently been trying to learn more about. It's not one that we teach in our high schools, probably for obvious reasons. A lot of those coal patch towns started in the late 1800s, the early 1900s. And when I say a coal patch town, it was a town that opened up that the company owned and controlled everything. The company owned the houses, they owned the mine, the company store. They didn't even pay people in actual money. They got like company credit (laughs) to buy their food. And if the eldest person in your family died in the mine, the next eldest man had to go work in the mine, whether or not that male was 12 or 30. And if you didn't provide someone to work in the mine, you no longer could live in the house that you were in. And so because of those, and we know this, this the birth of the UMWA, the birth of the United Steelworkers, you know, these poor working conditions is what has given us the eight-hour workday, paid leave, vacation, actual money to be paid for what you work and not company credit. There was that initial resistance that formed the unions, but then there was more work that was happening with the unions to go even further than working conditions, but environmental conditions. In Greene County, there was a gentleman who was running for president nationally of the UMWA. He lost in that election and was going to run in the next one, and his entire family was assassinated several months later. And he was trying to put together the fact that The workers have fought for safer conditions working in the mine, but then also their families were living next to the environmental pollution. And how do we as a union get the operators to clean up their act environmentally? And that apparently was very threatening to somebody. 
We hear a lot about how unions aren't the force that they once were, but is the sense of activism still alive? It's still there, but it's not as thriving as it was. I mean, you still have some of the men and women that fought in some of those union fights yeah. alive today, and they're still there, and they're still talking to their kids about it some. But what we've really lost is that culture that, as a community, we have to fight for what we need and what we want. Nobody else is going to come in and just hand it to us. And mm. if we don't actively resist people coming in to profit off of our labor or our resources, then and they're going to be able to walk all over us. The role the union served in our history was having collective community buy-in, community discussions, community bargaining. And I think the work we're doing is trying to bring that back. How do we have collective bargaining as a community? And you don't have to have a union to have collective bargaining. You just have to be organizing and working together. And I think that's going to be a role needed in many communities across this country as we are seeing unions continue to struggle in different places. And what sort of drives me to this still today is that I'm not going to sit around and wait for someone else to save our community. I want to organize up within our community because the most powerful voices are those that are most directly impacted. And our legislators can ignore outside statewide environmental groups that maybe don't have a lot of membership in rural America, but they can ignore 50 people from their district asking right. them to do something. And that's the work of Center for Coalfield Justice. Yeah. And for, it's been too many years that my friends and family have been suffering from the coal and gas industry. And that's why I'm here today, to be with you, to share in your wins, to say that we aren't going to take it anymore. And we are growing and we are standing up as well. The Center for Coalfield Justice gives voice to communities that have been hurt in various ways by the legacy of fossil fuel extraction. In our conversation, Veronica described the early days of the coal industry's unbridled power and how today the exploitation continues as companies still have a grip on rural communities. Problems created by coal mining, fracking, or pipeline infrastructure build-out hurt the environment, property, and people. The Center for Coalfield Justice assists communities in regaining control of their environment, and they advocate constituents' interests to legislators. And when state enforcement falls short, the Center for Coalfield Justice will take the companies to court through litigation. And then we organize, and our organizing work is really where I came into a lot of it and is like core to my being. We organize with people to help them understand the systems of oppression that exist in the ways that you can push or you know nudge those systems to actually represent the folks that need the help most. I'm curious how the present political climate has affected the work. Leaders seem to want to pit us against each other and even companies. Is this national dialogue affecting the work that you're doing on the ground? People are so much more politically aware mm. since this last election than I have seen. I mean, for example, we organized a bus to go to the People's Climate March in D.C. Right. and never would we have been able to fill a bus to go to D.C. for an action except for the fact that people were mobilized and aware and wanted to feel like they could do something. One of the things we're very sensitive to, because there are a lot of folks in our community that did support the current president and did vote for him, and a lot of those votes came out of fear of what is next for us when they don't see anything else. There is a thing called clean coal. The EPA is so restrictive 
that they are putting our energy companies out of business. And all you have to do is go to a great place like Pennsylvania and you see what they're doing to the people, the miners and others in the energy business. It's a disgrace. We'll start winning, winning, winning. And you are going to be very proud. And for those miners, get ready because you're going to be working your asses off. All right. Thank you, everybody. The reality is he instilled a bunch of false hope in these communities. None of the regulations that have been stalled or, you know, stopped moving forward has had any impact on an increase in coal jobs. We actually just had a mine announced shutdown a couple weeks ago because of the lack of ability to compete on the market with their production cost, not because of regulations or anything. It was announced this past week that a coal mine, the Four West Mine in southwestern Pennsylvania, will close. It's another blow to the coal industry, which President Trump has promised to revive. MEPCO, the company that owns Four West, said it would be shutting down the Greene County mine because it had become less productive and more costly to operate. About 400 workers will lose their jobs. What we're seeing since last November is more folks realizing that they can't sit silently by, that by being silent, they're being complacent in the oppression that's going on and that they need to take action. And they're trying to find an outlet for that. And I think that's a challenge in a rural community. So what we're thinking about with the Center for Coalfield Justice this year is how do we provide those opportunities in Washington or in Waynesburg? And it may only be a march in Waynesburg of 20 people, but that's an outlet for those 20 people to feel like they belong and they're taking an action and an initiative moving forward. But I'm sure that you encounter people who say, you're trying to kill my family's livelihood. You're trying to kill my job. I mean, those are very recent things we've heard. We had a coal miner call us after there were recent layoffs as a result of some legal wins that we had had. And we had a conversation and he was expressing these concerns about being a 30-year-old man and not able to support his family and what is he going to have to do? Where will he find other work? And I had a conversation with him about my concerns about my daughter living in these communities and the future for her. And so the conversation we have is why are we prioritizing one person family over another when there's definitely a way in today's technology for both of our families to be able to be healthy and move forward. The problem is our government has totally neglected these coalfield communities and our legislators are out there in our state capital or in our national capital blindly pushing forward and denying the reality that the coal market is declining and a transition must happen. There have been efforts to retrain miners. In West Virginia, unemployed miners were encouraged to take classes in coding. But as one program leader has expressed, this has not succeeded in part because miners said, we don't want retraining because we believe coal mining jobs are coming back. The current presidential administration gained the attention of this population of coal miners and their families and recognized their political clout but will the industry come back as they have been promised? The reality is the resource itself has a life. And in Greene County, it has a life of about 30 to 40 years. And what happens then if we don't have a plan today? Because we've seen in history what happens when a mine abruptly shuts down 
Everybody that is able to leave the town leaves. Those that are left are those that don't have the resources to get themselves out of the situation, and they struggle significantly. The school district declines, the education declines, access to food declines. And when we have those conversations with workers, they get it. Their fear is nobody's gonna make that plan. Right. And that's when they find out the Center for Coalfield Justice is trying to initiate those conversations and push the legislators, they can see where we're coming from. We may still agree to disagree on several things, right. but they may help us on the economic transition work. Do you think there is hope for bringing back an era of citizen action? I think there's hope and I think it has to happen. And I think the question is going to be, are those that are marginalized, that don't have an option but to continue fighting for their survival, are others going to join in them and support that and be good allies? Or are others going to sit silently by? Or are others who aren't marginalized going to work actively against them? I have a lot of hope that no matter what, marginalized communities will continue fighting as they always have. I'm hoping, especially in the light of this last election and how more people have become awoke to what's going on, that we'll have better allyship and we'll have people letting the marginalized folks take the lead and push our country towards something where we need more community engagement. When you think about the arc of this whole dynamic that you're describing, mm -hmm. is there one person whose story leaps out at you as embodying what you're trying to make happen? In 2013, I believe, for all of their non-union retired mine managers, healthcare was cut. And one of those coal miners reached out to us and was like, I'm, you know, going to take a leap of faith and see if you all would be able to help us because nobody else was helping them. And we sat across a table and we said, you know, we're clearly not going to agree on everything, but we do agree that you deserve this health care that the company promised you. And so we can help you organize a campaign on different ways and strategies you can do it. And we just talked to them about corporate accountability campaigns. Several hundred retirees from Southwest Virginia to Central Pennsylvania came here to protest what they fear could be a reduction in their benefits and their pensions. In case you forget, we're the United Mine Workers of America, and we made you rich. One of those coal miners was the project manager that opened the Bailey Mine. Mm. That is the mine that impacted my life so personally growing up next to it. There was this moment when we were having this conversation about climate change and mining, and I just told him my story of why I don't like mining and what happened to me. And his response was, well, if that had happened to me, I probably wouldn't like coal mining either. And then he started coming to different trainings that we were putting on or our allies were. And he came to a training actually about the fight for 15. And he's an upper middle class white male who didn't necessarily see the need for $15 an hour. What are these people asking for? Should you make that if you're just, you know, working at McDonald's? And after hearing those service workers stories, going through that training the next day, he's like, why aren't we paying people a living <laughs> yeah. wage? And so it was really exciting to see the transformation that he was having by just getting access to different perceptions or stories from people who weren't like him.
and he's a grandfather and we still communicate some today and he'll always say like my biggest thing now is what am I doing for my grandkids and what's their future and so he's not your coal miner that the media tries to paint that's out there at a Trump rally you know, singing rah-rah, but he's also not your liberal who's at every march in the city of Pittsburgh. There's this middle of ground in our communities and in our country. That's where the real power is. And those are the people we need to be speaking to every time we're trying to put our messaging out. So I think it is important to not be so left or so right, but like, where's the middle in what are they thinking and how are we serving them too? Can't imagine a better place to stop. Veronica Koptis, thank mm-hmm. you so much for the work that you're doing. Your story is so interesting. It's You've been covered in The New Yorker <laughs> and with good reason. I think if there's hope for the country, it lies in the ability to find that middle ground that you're describing. I really love the fact that you're embodying that ethic and trying to bring it to a part of the world that too much of America writes off too easily. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. Veronica's story has relevance for all of us in this country. If we step outside of our fortified point of view and listen with patience to the opposition and truly hear their concerns, we may discover more common ground than differences. Veronica is bridging gaps in her community by doing just this. And perhaps if we can follow her lead, we can lessen the divisive discourse so prevalent today. 